The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code broken silicon for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off all other codes. Links in the description and I will say more later, but for now, let's get to the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a computer hardware and gaming podcast. I'm your host, Tom, and I'm joined by a very special guest today. I'll let you introduce yourself. Hey, yeah, it's uh, Tim here from Hardware Unboxed. <laughs> How's it going? Join you from uh, live in Australia. Yeah, like I said to Steve when he was on, uh, you are a time traveler. I was much better at correctly uh, putting down a reminder for the right time. Because uh, you said Monday, and I was like, oh, I guess I can do Monday. But I'm like, wait, that that's Sunday, actually, for me. Hopefully it isn't too bad. Yeah, no, actually, it's perfect for me. No, it, it's, uh, you know, center of America, Peoria, Illinois, doing a, doing a fine, surviving the end of the world just fine over a year. How's it been for you? Oh, you know, it's it's interesting times at the moment. Certainly lots of uncertainty going around, but yeah, coping too, not too badly. You know, we work from home, so not been too much of a change to our daily lives, which is good. Yeah, Steve said to me he would just be benchmarking a ton of graphics cards anyways. Yeah, pretty much. There's always, always stuff to test, so just keep myself busy, trying not to think about it too much. All right, I'm going to get right into it then. DragonEddy031 writes in, and he says, for what profession did you study? What professions have you had before you landed Hardware Unbox? And that really ties into the first note I put down is just, you know, mate, where are you from? What what brought and then what brought you to Hardware Unboxed? Oh, it's an interesting one. So I was always really interested in sort of PC hardware and, and tech and all that sort of thing. And when I was in school, like high school, which is our sort of final schooling system that we have, and then into university, I was working for a whole range of sites. Um, so I worked for Neowin, which is a, they cover like Microsoft News. Then I worked a little bit for Tech Spotlight with Steve, that's where we met. But all the while I was studying electrical engineering. So I thought, oh, being an engineer sounds cool. You know, being able to create the, the hardware and stuff would be a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it didn't really pan out this way. It's sort of, I was just much more interested in talking about tech and reviewing stuff and testing out all the latest things and actually going into that field. Because, you know, in Australia, there's not a lot of the engineering that I would have been interested in. It was mostly like train networks and, mm. you know, power stations. And it's like, uh, power station it sounds boring. So I have a, this stuff's much better. I have a friend who works at a power station and uh, we were going on a trip and at the airport, I was like, what are you doing? And he had like all these schematics out for a power station he works at in Chicago. And he was actually reading about a new power delivery upgrade in his spare time because he thought it was so fun. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if fun's the word <laughs> I study mechanical engineering well. Yeah, not for me either. Yeah. <laughs> Go on though, sorry. Oh, no, that's pretty much it to the story, really. You know, I'm, st I'm still young, so... I've been working at Hardware Unboxed for a couple of years after we sort of met met Steve at TechSpot. And yeah, the YouTube thing's been going really well. So I haven't been doing as much written stuff. And yeah, getting to work from home and test all the latest stuff just seems a lot better than having to go into an office. Well, 
I guess, not at the moment going to an office, but, you know, normally mm-hmm. having to deal with all that stuff. So, yeah, far prefer what's going on right now. It's great. So, I, actually, that's an interesting thing to bring up. So, you started writing then for TechSpot, right? And what was that like to start going into videos? Did you, uh, when you, it sounds like, you know, you were just kind of doing that at the side until you decided to do it full time. But did you see yourself eventually doing a bunch of video stuff or did you kind of just stumble into it? Um, I kind of, working at TechSpot, we really could just do whatever we wanted. So I sort of experimented a little bit with doing a few videos here and there, but nothing serious. It was just about, mm-hmm. you know, something to break up writing, try out something different. But I never really thought that I'd go into that. Again, I was sort of thinking I'd be an engineer and sort of give up the whole writing thing. Um, but then, yeah, when Steve sort of started up Hardware Unboxed and I was, he was like, oh, how should I go about doing some of this stuff, like recording video and all that? And I was just like, well, I haven't really been doing all that much, but here's a few tips. And then, you know, eventually it came to the point where, you know, Steve was ready to get someone else on board with it. It sort of hadn't died out. It became something worth doing. So, <laughs> yeah, just moved from from writing into that, which, yeah, writing is fun, fine, but I think the video platform is a lot better. It's a lot more interesting, engaging, all that sort of thing. So I prefer it. Yeah, when I, w- when I got into PC hardware, I was always, you know, reading stuff on Tom's Hardware and all these other websites, looking at bar graphs. And there were some really well-written articles. In fact, when I first saw like kind of, shall we say, hardware unboxed-like videos, I was like, why would I watch a video where I have to press pause to look at the bar graphs when I can just read reviews? But by now, I basically, it just, it just seems like the tech tuber thing is now the standard of the reviews for these things. It was kind of in... At least I think it is, don't you? Like that's that's basically the standard of where people go now is YouTube reviews. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think as people sort of love the YouTube platform and it's kind of the the platform for everything, there's sort of room for everything on the platform. Like you can sort of do the bar graph thing that we do, or do you know some people do their benchmarking where they just show graphs briefly. Maybe they talk about it for a few seconds and sort of pass over it. More like mm-hmm. you sort of maybe a Dave Two D or Linus Tech Tips or something like that. And then there's just people who don't do it. And I think there's room for everything there. But I agree. Sometimes I sort of think, you know, it's nice to be able to read the graphs a bit more clearly, not have to pause and look at that sort of thing, which is, I guess, why a lot of our stuff's on TechSpot. Well, you guys do that though, right? Yeah. I mean, all of it's on TechSpot if you want to do that. And But at the same time, it's kind of like a podcast. Like sometimes you don't even necessarily mm-hmm. need to be looking at what's going on. You can just listen to us explain the graphs and talk about all that sort of thing. So I didn't think it would work too well, but people seem to like it. So I guess <laughs> it's kind of worked out well. I got another reader mail here. Autobahn writes in and he says, what beard oil do you use? I want an epic beard like you, but the ones I use are just too scratchy. <laughs> beard oil. Not none. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I don't know. <laughs> I think I need to have like much longer sort of more lumberjack style, you know, farmer type beard to justify the beard oil, I think. But, you know, we'd benchmark them all, choose the best one if we need to go down that path. <laughs> well, you could brand it too. You could do hardware unboxed beard oil and sell it on your site. Oh, that's a great merch idea. You've got to go write that one down. So now you have to grow out. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> In fact, you could even do special editions for like Big Navi or something and oh, come yeah. up with a catchy name that ties it People in. People can choose their own uh, brand that they like an Intel brand one if they're a fan, fanboy of that and AMD fanboy one. That, that'd be nice. I, 
Definitely just do like an NVIDIA Super one first so you can have more people accusing you of being NVIDIA shills. That's what I would recommend. Yeah. Just lean into Get it. Get the shill ones out first. Yeah. Make sure that uh, it comes with like a free box with some money in it on the side and all that sort of thing. We'll, we'll be set. Mm-hmm. So I guess the first piece of actual hardware I want to start talking about is something I feel like we kind of have to because you just reviewed it. So yeah, sure. like just... What do you think about Renoir? I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing for myself first, and that's that it exceeded all of my expectations, and I actually had some pretty huge expectations before it came out. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what my expectations were going in because you know, with sort of AMD stuff, they can either do it really well, like we've seen with Ryzen, and then not execute as well, like with some of their GPU launches recently. So. Yeah, I'm not sure what my expectations were going in, but certainly it performs really well. Like, no doubting that they've really hit the nail on the head in all the sorts of performance categories that they needed to address. There was, let's be honest, mm-hmm. Ryzen 3000 on mobile, there was lots of issues, especially the 3750H. Mm-hmm. Not a great part, not something I would have recommended. Lots of issues. And it seems like they've basically just gone through and be like, okay, performance, that's sorted on multi-core. We've sorted single-thread performance, that's done. We've sorted GPU, mm-hmm. we've sorted the software side, which was a big issue with crashes, stability, all that sort of thing. Sorted efficiency yeah. and battery life seems to be improved. Maybe not where Intel is, but certainly improved. So, you know, all of that stuff put together means I think it's a, been, been very impressive, as you say. Yeah, one thing that really surprised me was the battery life. I mean, I, I certainly expected it to be better than any of their previous products, but there was there is this massive advantage Intel seem has seemed to continue to have when it comes to idle power usage. I don't know if it's as good as Intel yet, but I mean, you showed it 11 hours of battery life with a, you know, 8-core laptop with an RTX 2060. I mean, I don't think you can complain too much about battery life once you're over 8 hours with I mean, it was something that games better than even the higher-end current-gen consoles that are out there. Yeah, the, the idle stuff's always interesting because I was thinking, you know, how often are you going to be in an idle state in a laptop? Like, are you just sitting it there? And like, It always depends greatly on sort of your usage as to how important the idle power usage stuff is. So even if, mm-hmm. even if AMD is not quite at the level of Intel, I would have thought that a lot of people aren't really just sitting their laptop there not doing much. So for me, it's always been about how much performance can you get within the the power envelope that they're advertising these processors at? Because if you can do more within 15 watts, that means you can do more with your battery capacity. Like you can compute more and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I've been really impressed with pretty much all of that sort of stuff. It does, again, doesn't seem quite as good as Intel. They can, I don't know what they're doing with their processors to just cut power just completely off when you're not doing much with your laptop. But yeah, the, the kind of gets to a point where there's a, you get enough battery life. And once you have enough battery life, whether you get an extra one or two hours on top of that, I don't think matters for a lot of people that are doing business stuff day to day, charging it every night, only need eight hours or so. So it's been, it's been good. Well, again, I, I think there's absolutely no doubt that Intel's going to continue to get their processors at every OEM and in every boutique builder, at least for the time being. But in terms of when you have a choice and people look at reviews, I mean, the the... Gaming performance itself, I saw Linus Tech Tips, the, uh, they had the 2060 non-Max-Q in the Intel 8-core uh, laptop, 
And they had, I think the same one you were reviewing as a Max-Q 2060. And they actually found that the Max-Q 2060 with Renoir was outperforming the non-Max-Q 2060 in the Intel laptop. Thus showing that because of how much more the Intel processor needs to throttle while you're gaming, because it's just not as efficient when it's you know at full usage, that actually AMD's gaming performance was... I mean, again, right, we're talking about one that's usually 10% weaker, and it was able to overcome that. Yeah, that's something I've been looking at recently. I think I'll have a video going up soon that goes into the discrete GPU performance doing basically that, like 2060 versus 2060 Max-Q, because mm-hmm. yeah, we can't find any 2060 Max-Q laptops except this one. Um, but I've been testing a lot of things, and overall, it's been very, very impressive what you can get out of the Renoir Plus 2060 Max-Q. I did a bit of... 720p gaming, which is not really something you would do, right? It's not like a, yeah, you know, you're not playing 720p games on your laptop. It's got a 1080p screen. That's what you're doing. Performance is great at 1080p. But when you're looking at sort of your CPU bottleneck situation, it gets, it's either very, very close or outperforming the sort of Intel equivalent plus 2060 system, which is pretty impressive in these CPU limited situations. And there's plenty of situations Mm -hmm. even at 1080p where games are, very close to be, or either CPU limited or very close to being CPU limited at 1080p. You know, games like Grand Theft Auto V come to mind, Watch Dogs mm-hmm. 2, games like that, where you can get better 1% low performance with the Renoir Plus 2060 Max-Q or even sometimes better average performance. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think if we can get, well, not us, but if an OEM actually decides to put this Renoir APU with it, high quality, high tier GPU, like 2070, 2080, Max-Q or not, I think it'll be a better solution for a lot of people. But right now, OEMs are kind of being a bit hesitant, reusing designs with Intel, which is a bit disappointing. Well, I mean, it, it, it takes time to get into a market that's been dominated by Intel for uh, <laughs> over a decade. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. T- yeah, I'm not talking about desktop. When it comes to laptop, this has been one of Intel's crown jewels, and I, I really think Intel. This is me speaking personally. Did not expect Renoir to be this good. At least from the people I talked to who are connected to Intel, they are very, very, very excited about Tiger Lake. And they still are for sure. But I think they really thought that Renoir and I. I mean, I think I expected this. I'll speak for myself too. Look, we had 65-watt 3700X, so I thought if they brought an 8-core to laptop, well, it'll probably, you know, they'll get like a 45-watt one, but it'll throttle a ton. And it seems like they've managed to make it actually perform like almost a 3700X and a substantially smaller form factor than anyone expected, including Intel. And so, I mean, I know right now Intel's working on getting out 8-core Tiger Lakes eventually too, so that'll be... Really interesting. But actually, let me let me move this conversation forward a bit. John O'Shea writes in and he says, when are laptops with 4,800 U's expected to come out? I'm much more interested in those and other sm- lower tier Renoir CPUs in the 4,900 HS. And so I guess for this, I'm kind of asking you, like, w- are there other Renoir models that you're more excited about than what AMD's led with? I was always more interested in the U-series stuff, but I think part of that was down to I wasn't expecting, I guess, going from like the 3750H, maybe I wasn't expecting the H-series to be like the best performing or I was expecting it to perform well, Mm. but maybe not the best relative performance. Like it might outperform Intel, but not by as much as I was expecting U-series to. Me too, So I haven't tested it yet, so I can't say for sure, but it looks 
like based on what AMD is saying that that's their sort of crown jewel processor. The U series, especially the eight core mm. ones, where they can really take a significant lead over uh, Intel's part. So I think that's what I was most excited about is testing that stuff. And as for when it's coming, I'm expecting to get U series laptops in the next couple of weeks. I think like the Lenovo system should be coming soon, very soon. And then I think there's a few Acer ones as well, but I guess it's just up to OEMs to refresh with these products in. And maybe it's not the right time for ultra portables. A lot of those come out more towards the end of the year when they do their big back back to school school refreshes. So maybe we'll get more then. But I think reviews for that stuff should be should be pretty soon. It was meant to be the first laptop we were going to get. We were meant to get the the U series before Mm. the H series, but obviously with this uh, human malware situation right now, it's kind of a yeah bit of a change up to the schedule there, but hopefully we can get to U series performance soon. Yeah, it's interesting you say that's the 4800U is the one AMD is most excited about because when I saw all the reviews for the 4900HS, which is the binned version of the 4900H, I was like, oh, well, now that I see how well this one performs, it's literally beating Intel's like 90-watt laptop CPU. It at least seemed clear to me maybe that's why they led with that because they're just their first shot fired is and that's it we have the best mobile gaming cpu but i am very curious too like how much cheaper oems will be able to pay for say the six core and 12 thread models that should easily you know be able to keep decent clock speeds at 15 watts and you know maybe pair that with a i don't know a 1660 ti or a 2060 max q i'm really wondering how thin the laptops can get with a full six-core processor. I don't know what you think about that or if you'd be more interested in the eight-core. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to say because OEMs like to do all sorts of things, really, with their designs. I think something we've seen recently is with the sort of Intel generation like Ice Lake and Comet Lake, a lot of OEMs have gone from a, like a 15-watt design to more of a 25-watt design. Like a lot of mm-hmm. those Ice Lake and, and Comet Lake parts are the 25-watt, like, TDP up version for whatever reason. Maybe they were sick of 15 watt, not much performance there. So we'll up that to 25 watts to actually get a performance gain. And that's made laptops maybe a little bit thicker, you know, maybe more OEMs exploring the 14 inch designs to fit that sort of thing in. But I think really they could be going the other way if they went with sort of the Renoir design and keeping it at 15 watts. Mm-hmm. Because like I've got an LG Gram, for example, that probably isn't going to be a 25 watt design. Yeah. And they could get a significant performance increase I'd be expecting from like a U-series part. So again, it's just so hard to say what OEMs do because they do all sorts of things. They like to just go off on their own world. There'll probably be some like thick-ass 15-inch laptops with these U-series parts in it. I think the Acer one is putting the 6-core for as low as like 500 and something US dollars. Like this. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty impressive, I'd think, but probably not the slimmest design, but... Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see how that one plays out. I'm so I'd be really keen on like a LG Gram or like a Dell XPS design or something along those lines with these parts in it. That's that's where I'd be sort of buying, I reckon. Yeah, when uh, that's one thing I I've done a couple of videos about this recently. Um, when it it some people, I mean, a, a lot of the early Renoir models coming out in laptops are twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars right now. But I think that's obviously because I mean, look, this is the best laptop CPU now. It's just flat out the best, I think, in general. There, there's, you know, there are sometimes you might want another one for specific tasks, but and and so it makes sense why they would lead with the the high end first. 
And also, I think AMD will, wants to capitalize on this performance win to get as much money in it, the lead as they can. But at the same time, this is a 150 millimeter squared APU. Uh, Picasso and Zen 1 APUs were 210 millimeters squared, and they were going into pretty cheap laptops. So one thing I keep trying to convey to people is I, I, I understand that this is the best one right now, but I really think this is AMD's budget APU. It's a small die size. It doesn't have PCIe 4.0. If you look at the amount of SATAs it supports, I really think they cut it down quite a bit to make this a, a APU that's perfect for two usages. Like Intel's CPUs, you compare it with a dedicated card. And then if you cut it down, it's Vega 8 graphics are, you know, I don't know, a bit below probably an RX 460. I haven't actually seen a test just on the uh, APU graphics yet. And at that level, it's perfect for either budget or dedicated card laptops. But the super APUs that combine powerful integrated graphics are coming, and they'll probably have PCIe 4.0 and all of these other things. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of room that they could do lots of stuff with like future products. And I agree. I think that the design they've gone with really is optimized to sell these as cheaply as they can, whether or not they're actually selling them to OEMs cheaply, I'm not sure. They said, when I asked AMD, they said it'd be similar to previous generations, but even if it's really cheap for them to manufacture, obviously they're making a significant margin either way. So a win for AMD there, I'd would, I'd think. So yeah, there's some there's some limitations for things that I think could be improved. As you say, if they went into a large APU design, I think fixing the cash situation would be would be great to get that more up with where Intel is. Obviously, if they get a big bigger GPU, that'd mm. be nice as as well. But as far as the it performs right now, I think yeah, they could. Re- it's really suiting a, a very wide range of products on the market. Anything from the, that Acer system I was just talking about that's as low as five hundred US dollars, right up to powerful gaming laptops. Again whether or not companies will actually choose to use it over Intel is another question because mm-hmm. of a whole variety of reasons. But if they wanted to lead with a high-performance part and say, we have the fastest gaming laptop, or whether they want to say, we have your $500 school, you know, take this to your classroom and edit Word documents on I think they've got all that stuff covered right now. So they're in a very strong position and it's only going to get better if, as you say, they go to a larger design something a bit, bit higher end, what they can do there. There's really lots of room to go with everything, which is why I think this generation is really exciting. Yeah, and I know that um, if you look at the die shots specifically for Renoir, you can see that the graphics portion of the APU is actually quite a small portion of it compared to every previous design they had. And so the rumor is that there's two... Um, APUs coming. There's uh, Van Gogh, which is reportedly being tested at Apple with 16 compute units. And I've I've long said that I just think, I really think AMD could win a contract with Apple just by calling it Van Gogh, because I cannot think of a better marketing term for Tim to walk on stage and just go, you know, uh, the new MacBook with Van Gogh graphics for film students. <laughs> like, yeah. can you think of a better marketing <laughs> term? But it actually brings up an interesting question. So you seem more uh, pretty interested in the, uh, I don't know how big, but gaming laptops. But 
how much performance would you sacrifice to just have the laptop a little bit, maybe not thinner, I think they're thin enough if you ask me personally, but a bit smaller, a bit longer battery life? Like, Would you trade an RTX 2060 Max-Q laptop with Renoir for, let's say, let's say Van Gogh, if Van Gogh has 16 compute units. Let's say the graphics performance, that's 16 compute units, but a 5500 XT has, I think, 20 or 24. So yeah, let, let's say it's half the performance of the RTX 2060. But would you do that if it gave you a 15-hour battery life and it was lighter instead of like a 10-hour battery life? Yeah, interesting question. I have to, th- I have to think it's about it. It's an interesting it. question because this is really what it all comes down to. With all these sort of things, it would depend on your use case. Like, are you more into gaming or are you more into like your content creation stuff? And I think if you were like really into gaming, then you might go for the, the 2060 system. But for me personally... Oh, let, let's assume they're the same cost too. I have to say, okay. let's assume they're the same cost. Yeah, so I think for me personally, as someone that doesn't really do a lot of gaming on a laptop because I have a very powerful desktop, there's not a whole lot of reason for me to do yeah. stuff on a laptop. It'd be more for like my productivity tasks, like if I'm out and about, and like if I could replace like for Computex, for example, we take a like a mini ITX gaming PC, well not gaming PC, but editing rig over to Taiwan to edit with because laptops are just not really fast enough. So if the, if mm-hmm. I could replace that entire system and still get good GPU performance because a lot of you know apps require compute acceleration these days, maybe I could do a little mm-hmm. bit of gaming from here and there if I'm on like a holiday or something, but not like you know current APU tier gaming where you're talking about like 1080p low settings. If we're getting like 1080p medium to high settings, 60 FPS in modern games which I think would be reasonably achievable with a decent APU-style thing, maybe twice the compute units, then, yeah, I think if it's a slim and light system, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be like a flying-off-the-shelves, hotcakes-type product. Um, if it's really hitting all those things like battery life, slim and light performance, it can do a bit of gaming on the side. I think that would be a really killer product. Um, at the same time, I think one of the limitations with that sort of large compute unit APU would be the memory bandwidth situation because right now even with LPDDR4X there's still significantly lower bandwidth than what you get with like your discrete GPU with your GDDR. Yeah, I think that's so, why they went with eight compute yeah. units too because uh, they realized OEMs, I mean, if you looked at Picasso, OEMs were sometimes using 1600 megahertz single channel memory oh, with that Vega 11. And, and AMD realized if we go with eight compute units and higher IPC and higher clock speeds, they it can make do with much less bandwidth. Well, And again, that's why I think Renoir did that too because if Van Gogh, let's say, has 16 compute units, I think they know Apple won't skimp on memory speeds, or at least they can tell OEMs, hey, if you're going to cheap out on the memory speeds, use Renoir. If you're not, use Van Gogh or something like like that. And when you look at how fast DDR4 is getting, um, and actually, let me ask you this. Have you seen uh, DDR5's announcement, like how the speeds that's going to try to hit? 8,400 megahertz. Very, very impressive. I think that's really what would be needed for like a next generation APU. I mean, it's, it's hard to say because we don't really have like an APU with that sort of GPU right now to compare it to, to say that like DDR4 isn't sufficient. Mm-hmm. But given that a lot of the performance gains from this generation of APU seem to be from the memory bandwidth, it's possible that you'd need something like DDR5. But I think that'll be really key for getting these big APU designs for the next generation. So it's going to be a big step up, maybe not for the desktop, but certainly for for these sort of laptop designs now that we have a bit of competition back in things. 
Yeah, and the way I think of it is, I mean, DDR is obviously uh, has lower latency than GDR, um, and so it's a bit better at the same speeds. The way I think of it is, like, there were plenty of GDR5 cards going all the way back to Fermi that had 4,000 megahertz memory. And if you think about that, DDR4 is basically caught up to the slower GDR5 days in bandwidth. And with DDR5, it's going to exceed GDR5 bandwidth. So that should open up that should open up APUs that are as strong as an RX 590 or something, which yeah. is, I think, pretty exciting to think about getting that into a thin and light. And uh, going back to the initial question I just asked you, I, you know, I have a NV13T. And that has an MX250 and a quad-core i7 in it. I got it like a year ago. And, and for me, I, when, when I travel, as long as it can run the AAA game, so I can like play Battlefield at like 720p, <laughs> 60 frames with my brother for an hour in the hotel when I'm on business, that's all I really look for. I don't really see... And I gotta say, if AMD makes something that's as strong as, I mean, let's again, let's be, if as long as it's not bandwidth constrained too much, if Fango is 16 compute units, and I think it's, it, it might even have RDNA graphics in that too. If it actually were to have that, I mean, I think you're getting just below, I don't know, right? Like a little bit below a 5500 XT at that point. Yeah, and that would be decent. Like it would be weaker. It would be, but yeah. You know, and for me, it's like, I don't see why. I need to game at the highest settings on my laptop. And my first laptop for college was, it was, it was this, it was back in the Celeron day. So this big 19 inch laptop with, I think, I don't know what it was called, a, 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 a GT 130 M or something. I think that it was, uh, I want to say it had 32 or 48 CUDA cores <laughs> and that, and and a three, well, I mean, it was 2010, and then a three gigahertz dual core, and it could run, it could run Crisis, you know, nice. in 720p at like high settings, but that thing got so hot, and I mean, it had like a one hour battery life, and so I don't, I've never understood what the point is if I can't actually play it <laughs> for more than an hour without it getting super hot. I mean, you can make desktops pretty small now, actually, too. So if it's a portability argument, you can make a desktop that fits in your backpack that actually has like a 2080. Yeah, the portability thing with gaming laptops is kind of, they have to st you know, always stay ahead of desktops because otherwise, what's the point? Like, there's no, I've never understood those huge, chunky, like 17 inch MSI, like GT series. You know, they put the 9900K in there. It's like this big, chunky thing. It's yeah. like, at that point, it's not a portable system. Like, you, you should be using like a mini ITX gaming desktop with proper desktop components, like no throttling. You can get a good, like maybe a liquid, small form factor liquid cooler or something in there. I always think that that's more appropriate for that sort of market. But for, for so your slim and lights, I think there's a lot of room to grow there for, for growing performance. And yeah, you don't necessarily need top-tier gaming laptop type performance out of the GPU. They don't need to provide RTX 2070, RTX 2080 graphics and APU form factor. All they need is really being able to game at the native resolution of the panel, which we're still in the sort of 1080p generation. So that's fairly achievable. Good frame rate, 60 FPS yeah. would be nice. And then maybe one step up from your low settings, like medium settings. And once you sort of hit all those three things, I think you start getting a gaming laptop in a 13-inch form factor. Like, yep. 
Which is so exciting. You don't need to play ultra settings on a laptop. Like you, for a lot of people who buy ultra portables, it's not their primary, going to be a primary gaming system. A lot of people would have, if they're really serious about PC gaming, would have like a, you know, a d- proper desktop at home. This is their portable thing. They're at hotels, as you say, doing traveling, doing something like that. They want to hop into a game. And if you can hit those sort of those three things, you're getting a decent enough experience. It's not top tier, but it's decent enough. And I think right now with Renoir, with a game like Gears 5 at 1080p medium settings, I was seeing like 20-ish FPS, which is not playable at those settings right now. But if you're talking about, say, doubling the performance, suddenly you're in a playable, like it's yeah. reasonably playable. And maybe with a few like dynamic resolution scaling things going on, suddenly that's actually a really good gaming system. And that's in a like a 13-inch design. So I think that's something that could be achievable in the future. How the console generations impact where games go is another question, I guess. But yeah, I think it's possible. Well, yeah, actually, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I want to touch on that. One thing that really excites me about the next-gen consoles is that, you know, obviously their graphics cards are significantly more powerful than the previous gen. But a lot of it is coming down to storage in the CPU this time, which is the thing they lacked on before. And if you think about it, though, you know, the problem with previous gen was, you know, the, 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 I don't know what you want to say. Like, I, I, I call it, I say the Xbox One X was like an overclocked RX 590. PS4 Pro was like a 570. You know, the, if you have my MX250, you can just barely run the game, you know, yeah. uh, that the consoles can run. And getting a quad core in my laptop with eight threads has finally allowed the laptop to not be CPU bottlenecked. But that's the thing. If the consoles have 3.6 gigahertz, eight cores, you know, if you have a Renoir CPU, it should be able to not be CPU bottlenecked by AAA games already. And as long as you have a fast SSD in your laptop, which most decent laptops do now, I don't see why you won't be able to run triple-A games just turn down the settings a ton. And that just wasn't true before. I'm thinking of like playing Dark Souls 3 on my previous laptop. And I had to play it in like 480p at 28 frames a second. And uh, but I was in the hotel room for a couple hours. My friends wanted to get on, you know. And it's like, I don't, I think that era of those types of sacrifices on gaming on ultra portables is going to be a thing of the past when they have a CPU powerful enough to keep up with 60 frames, which is a much bigger deal, I think, than the resolution when you're gaming on the go. I found playing Battlefield 5 online, I just gave up because it doesn't matter. The frame rate's not like the 144 hertz I'm used to, and it stopped being fun for me because yeah. I was, I wasn't doing as well. <laughs> like, and so I think. As long as you turn down, like if the consoles, and I do think they will, will run games at 4K Ultra or whatever close to there, I don't see why you can't just play it in 1080p at 60 now on your laptop. And the difference between having to turn things down from 1080p 30 to 480p 20, and instead you're turning it down from the consoles 4K 60 to 1080p 60, that's a substantial difference in actual playability. That's what I'm really excited about. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting on the CPU side to see how much CPU resources they're using from these new consoles because the Jaguar CPU was, I don't know how you put it, <laughs> peanut quality, like just not not good. Like the, it, it was meant to run games at 30 frames and it had enough cores to keep them. Yeah. From, but that's all it was meant to do. <laughs> yeah, it was basically like the, the cheapest possible thing they could put in there and to allocate as much I don't know, performance to the GPUs they could. 
So now that they've got an actually capable CPU in these consoles, you know, how, how many years is it until they're sort of really tackling you know, eight cores and 16 threads on those sort of platforms, which would mean that on a laptop, you know, you would need like an eight core, 16 thread laptop to sort of deal with that. But then I think, you know, mm-hmm. on a laptop, you kind of, you're kind of in a situation where you've got like a limited power budget, especially if you're using the GPU in the APU itself. And if, you know, the consoles have got these massively powerful APUs, like they're not running these at 45 watts or 15 watts. It's like significantly above no. that. So It's like 300 watts, it seems. Yeah, yeah. If, if you've got a game that's, you know, suddenly loading in all sorts of stuff and requires a beefy CPU and you have to allocate a significant portion of the power budget of the APU to actually the CPU side, which hasn't really been true with a lot of games recently, like you just you just blast all the power to the GPU and downclock the CPU massively, and you, you mm. get a decent game experience. With these upcoming generations, it could be a bit more of a balancing act for like a laptop form factor between where do you allocate the power to to get that 1080p 60 experience because there could be quite high CPU requirements. So I think mm, you know that's true with the console generations. It could be yeah, it could be like a the discrete laptop offerings where you've got the, this APU plus the discrete GPU could be really, really powerful. But with the APU side, it could be a bit more of a, a dicey situation to get there. But I think it, it could be possible considering how far up they're going with the, the next-gen consoles in terms of, as you say, 4K60 is just not needed on your, your ultra-portable. So they should be able to cut down a fair bit of stuff. So, Well... An interesting thing that you brought up that I, I hadn't thought about is it's true that they said the de- I don't remember the name. There's a decompression block in the Xbox Series X that allows it to you know off- offload those tasks and kind of save money on a cheaper SSD that effectively runs yeah. as fast as you know something almost Gen Four. But then they also have another dedicated I don't uh, decoder for. Um, streaming in the data. And they said it makes their APU the equivalent of like a 13 core because like I've seen this when loading the Division 2, it'll use my 3950X at 100% for a few seconds to load that Gen 4 SSD quickly. And that's true that I know the Xbox Series X has that. And I know the PlayStation 5 also has a dedicated streamer for its extremely fast SSD. And it says it's the equivalent of having an additional nine cores in addition to its eight cores. And so they have just like a dedicated equivalent of what would be nine Zen 2 cores decoding the SSD to load games quickly. So that's a good point. I haven't, I haven't, that is definitely one thing where you're not gonna, I mean, hopefully Zen 3 will be good enough to make up for that, but that, that's true. That will be a limitation for running yeah. games on uh, slim laptops. I think though, even though we're saying that there's gonna be all these limitations with that sort of stuff and, you know, the hardware is obviously gonna be quite a way ahead with those consoles. It's also going to be quite a way until developers start really utilizing a lot of those things that are given to them, especially because a lot of games initially are going to be you know, cross-gen titles like we saw with the mm. 360 to Xbox One yeah. series. So and that gives us multiple generations of APUs and other hardware to sort of catch up to the point where maybe they include some of those processing blocks in the future APUs if it's a really big performance issue for gaming. I think it's so, common sense to do eventually. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're probably talking, you know, we're talking about our, our Zen 2 and Zen 3 APUs, but really by the time that stuff becomes an issue, we could be multiple Zen generations down the track before, yeah, we need to start, start thinking about all that sort of thing. So at least initially I think we, we'll be okay, but they're definitely going to have to design a few things around that for gaming for, for future architectures, I would have thought. Um, 
based on that console. Well, yeah, stuff. I think if you get a Renoir APU now, you're pretty much good to run AAA yeah. games with turned down settings for at least a year. I do think devs will use these features faster than I think some people suspect, but there's no doubt that unlike previous APU generations, this is one where I really do think it's going to, again, again, will you have to turn down settings versus the consoles, even the current gen ones? Yes, but the, again, I think the difference between turning it down from 1080p to 480p and 4K to 1080p, you, I'd much rather <laughs> be stuck with that kind of a resolution. I mean, and, and that means pretty much everyone should be able to play AAA games pretty soon. But let me move this on here. So Renoir's here. It's impressive. And Intel has Tiger Lake coming out at the end of this year, the quad-core models, and there's the rumor that they're going to have the six and the eight-core models follow after that. What do you want out of, or I don't know, I guess I'll ask it two ways. What do you expect out of Tiger Lake? And what do you think it has to be to really make a big splash against Renoir? Uh, okay, so I'll start with what I expect from Tiger Lake, I guess. And yeah, always speculation stuff is is hard to sort of pin down. Mm-hmm. I would, wouldn't be expecting too much. I think Ice Lake really disappointed me as a product. I think I, I know mm. there was a lot of struggles with 10 nanometer and all that sort of thing. That's been a topic for ages, but its performance mm. was pretty unimpressive in my opinion. Like especially like we get a bit more single thread performance. We get equivalent multi core performance. Yeah, the GPU is faster, but it's nothing. It's not like a groundbreaking GPU or anything. It's just sort of matching kind of what AMD was doing. It was, yeah. it was, it was okay. Yeah. Like, it, it, And again, it's not a terrible processor. It's just when we talk about a generational gain, which is what they should have been getting, you know, with 14 to 10, yeah, we should have been getting a lot more than what we got with Ice Lake, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. when I think of Tiger Lake and, you know, 10 nanometer plus or plus plus or however many pluses you want to add to that, you know, how much are they going to be able to get out of that is really up in the air, and if you think of you know what Renoir is doing now on the APU side, they're going to have to they're going to have to be getting you know 30, 40, 50 percent more performance multi-threaded at least to sort of match yeah. the performance that AMD is offering. And can I see them doing that, especially if initially they're only launching quad cores? I, I wouldn't have thought so. I don't think a quad core could be will be able to match an eight core Renoir API. Mm. I just don't think that's achievable. And I think, you know, it's interesting you saying earlier about Intel being a bit blindsided by, you know, the performance of Renoir. We don't have strong ties with Intel or anything, so we don't chat a lot to them about this sort of thing. So, yeah, if they, I think it'll be interesting if they do just launch the eight, the four-core models without eight-core because maybe they've been going along nicely just thinking, oh, AMD's only going to launch your sort of quad mm-hmm. cores in the in the 15-watt market. Suddenly they're out with an eight-core and it's like, oh, hang on, yeah. hang on a moment. Our quad-core Tiger Lake that we thought is going to be giving you know, maybe twenty percent more multi-thread performance or whatever they get, suddenly it's not looking so crash hot anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess that sort of is answering both questions at the same time of what I what <laughs> I sort of expect and what they need to do. What I expect they'll do is a little bit more. Like I expect it to be a decent performance upgrade, but not enough. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see where that that lies. I think it could be a bit closer on the GPU side though, because the the, oh, yeah. the Renoir APU's GPU isn't that much more powerful, certainly not matching the CPU gains in terms of getting a whole lot more out of it. Uh, so I'd expect Tiger Lake to be comp- reasonably competitive, probably a bit slower, but competitive-ish. But on the CPU side, I don't think they'll be in the ballpark in the sort of 15-watt class. Well, yeah, the the rumors, and then again, a few people I've talked to connected to Intel, it's like, 
Tiger Lake is on the first working 10 nanometer from Intel, finally. And so it sounds like, will it be 14 nanometer clock speeds? Mm, I don't know about boost clocks, no. But it sounds like the base clock will be, I mean, Ice Lake's base clocks are like nothing. And it sounds like the base clocks for Tiger Lake are expected to be pretty close to their 14 nanometer models. And the IPC, it is supposed to get another like 7 to 10% IPC bump. So I think per core, they might actually exceed Renoir the, uh, by a bit. But yeah, four cores is, it's just not enough anymore, in my opinion. And then the graphics are supposed to be a bit better, actually. Like they really are supposed to be double Ice Lake in the 28 watt models. So I think that's enough. And again, I think exactly like you were just saying, it, they thought that would be enough because they thought Renoir would not hit the clocks it did on the CPUs when all eight cores were boosting. And so I think the four core model has some competition for cut down Renoirs, but, and I do think the eight core Tiger Lakes could pan out to be a good competition to Renoir, if not better. But again, so what? That's early 2021. Renoir is the budget option. That's really going to be fighting. This is M3 fight. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think it, the the only thing I said in a video I actually had come out today is I'm just excited that we're going to get these by early next year. No matter who wins, the fact that we have 8-core Tiger Lake fighting like a Zen 3 APU, like just how quickly. Three years ago, we were talking about how, oh, isn't it crazy? KB Lake R has four cores and 15 watts, and now we're getting eight cores, and games are actually, they're actually running at like 200 frames in Counter-Strike in a laptop, and that's just, that that's something I'm specifically excited about. I don't know if that's kind of blowing you away at all, like how quickly laptops are moving right now. Well, that's what competition does, isn't it? Suddenly you've got Intel mm-hmm. kind of going, oh, we actually need to do something and not just incremental upgrades every generation. Once you actually have competition, you start seeing really good things in this space. And you know, we've talked about how AMD really hasn't been competitive. I, I don't think ever is pro- probably right to say. I don't think they've ever been competitive in laptops. I, I like their cheap APUs. I like their, yeah. ja- their Jaguar and Bobcats because it's better than Atom. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't really do a lot in that market, so... I wasn't really thinking too much about the low-end stuff. But yeah, they've been okay in the budget realm in terms of value products and that sort of thing. But you know, in terms of our high-performance stuff, your know, ultra-portables, your premium tier, mm-hmm. I don't think they've ever been competitive until now. So mm-hmm. having that just means there's going to be so much stuff happening in the market. We're not going to be getting... you know, They're not going to be able to rehash like a CPU and just bump clock speeds by 100 megahertz anymore. It's not going to cut it. So that's going to be... Yeah, very, very exciting for, for upcoming products to see how, how those battles play out. And yeah, will Tiger Lake be enough? I don't know. At, at least they've got something that's not a rehash of Ice Lake. Like they're not just going, oh, here's 100 megahertz more on Ice Lake and calling that a day. They actually do sound like they've got, you know, core, core changes, GPU changes, all that sort of thing, which is better than nothing. Um, but even if it's not quite there with Renoir, at least having some competition is going to make these companies battle it out and give us really high quality stuff, hopefully for the foreseeable future, if these companies can keep it up. Yeah. 
Alex Chipsovsky writes in and he says, how long do you think Intel will be viewed as always better from the consumer point of view uh, as a brand in laptops? Even though AMD is building stronger, performing and more efficient CPUs right now, I see the newest laptops with strong NVIDIA GPUs still being paired with Intel 10th gens that are nowhere near as good as Renoir. Isn't this also bad for manufacturers like Dell, HP due to the efficiency districts, especially in power and cooling limited laptops? laptops. So how long do you think this will continue, right? Like Intel's Mm. being thought of as the better brand in laptops? It's kind of, it's hard to say. I think there's sort of two ways that I could sort of answer that question. On the on the consumer side, in terms of your, your everyday buyer that's going into your, your retail store, mm-hmm. they look at the laptops there and they pick out one, that's going to be very difficult. That's going to take years and years, generations and generations, because it takes so long for that the information to filter down from you know, us as enthusiasts through to sort of you know the mm-hmm. all the way down to, the, to that sort of consumer could be could take a, a long time. And we, you know we've even seen that with Ryzen. They've had a couple of generations of having decent performing products on the desktop, but a lot of OEMs and pre-builds are still largely choosing Intel CPUs for their products, yeah. despite being especially for sort of your Core i5, Ryzen 5 product, in my opinion, the inferior, Mm. like the Core i5 is significantly inferior. So I think that we're in for that. But on the OEM side, I think it's going to be, we're going to get more quality designs shorter than consumers will be taking them up. Because right now, as your Mm -hmm. commenter has sort of said, there's no high quality Intel, like AMD plus NVIDIA 2070 or up graphics products. They just don't exist. And I think, mm-hmm. according to the OEMs, they say the reason for that is that these designs are largely refreshes, and 10th gen, as we know, is basically just 9th gen. So it sounds like from the engineering side of things, it was much easier for them to go from 9th to 10th gen than it was to switch out their 9th gen design uh, for the Renoir design that apparently requires yeah. a lot more re-engineering. But at some point, they're going to have to do that re-engineering for an Intel product as well. Like They're not just going to be keeping on Skylake forever. So at that point where they can sort of, it's justified putting the effort in for the re-engineering, I think that'll come sooner than the consumer demand is for these products. And I think that eventually we will be getting, maybe within like one generation or so, you know, these OEMs will be seeing this Renoir performance and going, hey, we could have that in our laptop. And the first manufacturer that puts it in is going to have a competitive advantage, which means that... Like Asus is, yeah. Yeah, so Asus or yeah has that with their... I mean, it's not 2070 class, but they've at least got a product yeah, that's yeah, competitive. Yeah. If MSI comes out with like 2070 Super plus 4900H laptop, suddenly your Gigabytes and your Asus's and your Aces and all those mm-hmm. companies are going to go, oh, well, they've got this better performing laptop. We've got to have our better performing laptop. And that'll cascade through. Maybe not when... Cons- maybe consumers will still be buying the Intel models, but at least there'll be that sort of, th- those products will be there on the market for people to buy who are, who have the knowledge to buy them. I think that'll come that'll come soon. Maybe maybe not necessarily with this generation now, maybe six months, maybe 12 months, I don't know, but I would expect that to happen soon.
Currently, I am in the process of breaking down my mining rigs. It's just not profitable anymore, and I want to use some of the spare parts, plus a few new ones, to build my first benchmarking station. Now, what most people might not be able to guess is that my mining rigs all used windows and ones with legitimate keys. But getting those legitimate keys was a hassle. I was forced to scour eBay and be discerning and making sure that the people selling those $10 Windows keys weren't a scam. And sometimes the keys didn't work and I had to fight for my money back. But you don't have to if you go to CDK Offers. Go to cdkoffers.com and use the promotional code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off an already cheap list price of Windows 10 Professional. Then all you do is click on your email account, go to user center and then my purchase orders to get the code just use this code with a normal download of windows 10 professional from microsoft's website all right links in the description yeah you know one thing that I found really interesting, though, even if Intel hasn't taken, it's kind of getting beaten up here now. And uh, let's be honest, this is the best time for AMD to go all out with a yeah. great APU yeah. and Intel basically has nothing. Um, but Intel does have Lakefield coming out. Have you seen like that interesting Sunny Cove core plus four Atom cores and Ice Lake 64 execution unit? APU that's like, it's like half the size of Renoir. It's, it's absolutely tiny. Have you have you seen Microsoft Surface Neo? Yeah, I follow. I haven't said I couldn't say I've followed all that stuff in depth. I've certainly been keeping a little bit of a track on some of those more. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that will be more for ultra portables or the even lower class in terms of like your atom type stuff, which, as I mentioned before, I don't mm -hmm. don't do a lot of work on. But 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 it does have a Sunny Cove core, so at least yeah. for the single threaded stuff, it's being controlled by an Ice Lake process. It's a, it's a really interesting design, and I think we'll see more of those sorts of companies experimenting with different sort of big, wide CPU cores with more of your smaller, narrow-focused, low-power design. You know, ARM processors for smartphones mm -hmm. have done this for a little while in terms of... It seems to be the way for those really power-constrained applications or, or form factors um, that you can mess around with these sort of core designs and put something big in, put something small in, and that's the optimal thing for that. So I'm really interested to see that because the Atom space could do with a bit of a shakeup from the x86 side. Um, those parts are really, really slow, like really like painful to use slow. Well, people at Intel insist to me that Atom doesn't suck anymore. One of them said that. He's like, I know it did. I swear it doesn't. He says it has almost Ivy Bridge IPC and Atom CPUs now. I don't know if I take okay. that as a good or... I think of it as... Well, I'll say this. Atom cores definitely did not have IP Bridge IPC before. They were so abysmally slow. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's nice to have Ivy Bridge IPC in performance now, but we're talking about, like, <laughs> Ivy Bridge is fairly old. So, you know, we're not in a situation where we have applications that were designed for Ivy Bridge CPUs anymore. We've got many, many mm -hmm. generations of performance requirements improving and increasing because we have more powerful CPUs. So even if they say, you know, oh, it's not as slow as it once was, well, applications have kind of improved as well. So if you take like an Atom laptop and put it next to like a Renoir or Ice Lake system, I would still expect it to be like massively slower. Yeah. Especially for things like web browsing, where it's kind of instantaneous on modern laptops. And the last time I used Atom, it, it was kind of like, oh, my web page is... It's got to render out those texts and images. So I don't know <laughs> if that's the case anymore. 
Well, I think what they're trying to do with Lakefield is make a five watt APU that's not cheap nor super expensive. And it's really meant to bring, because they give it that one isolate core, it's trying to give you a kind of, let's say, quad core laptop experience because there's five full cores and even if four of them are atom cores, but and that trying to get that into a a little bit bigger than a smartphone form factor. And I saw, at least for me, if they could ever get something that could just barely run even half of the latest games into my smartphone and then boot into Windows if I like plug it into a monitor or something. For me, that's such a fascinating idea to not need a laptop and a phone, but to just have a kind of like a folding out phablet design that is both my phone and a laptop. Is that something you're interested in eventually in the future? Yeah. I mean, uh, for a lot of things, we're sort of seeing performance continues to get pushed down into smaller and smaller form factors. So previously, Mm -hmm. you know, you had your 13-inch ultra-portable laptop with a dual-core processor. It's just a web browsing machine, basically. And and now in that same form factor, we're getting well. We've we've got quad cores now. We're just about to get eight core U series parts. That suddenly becomes more of a workstation product. Where theoretically, if performance holds up, you could be doing things more like your video encoding and editing. It might not be the fastest system, but that's now that's yeah, now light that's editing. now a possible thing where it wasn't previously. Which means that what previously used to be a web browsing machine now gets to be pushed into an even smaller form factor. And for a lot of people, in the future, there might not be the need to carry around a laptop because if you're just web browsing and you know, you're just checking up on your social media apps, you might be taking a few photos, doing a bit of editing, you know, all the standard light productivity stuff mm-hmm. that people talk about. If you can get that into a phone, there's not as much need for have carrying around your laptop anymore. And I think that's a really exciting sort of thing for the future that we'll see more of, you know? Why bother? Why bother yeah. carrying around a backpack with your laptop and just put in your put everything you need in your pocket and hook it up to a display at work if you need that or whatever? I think that's that's something that where everything's going. Yeah, flip open your Surface Neo and start playing Half Life Two on the train. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that's what I'd like to do. One thing though, I think, and this is something Intel's trying to corner is this ultra. This above average, I guess I'll call it above average performance atom power usage design they're going with Lakefield is the problem is AMD so ahead using TSMC that it's like I've been thinking to myself, well, wait a second though, if they can fit eight cores and 16 threads with decent graphics into a 15 watt APU, what's to stop them from, you know, seven nanometer EUV is like a half node shrink. What's to stop them from making a seven nanometer EUV? Four core, eight thread that probably uses the same amount of energy as Lakefield, considering how much more advanced Zen is. So, at least in terms of how I think about Lakefield, I'm excited to see how it actually performs. But it's like, if it doesn't come out soon, I don't see what's stopping AMD from just getting their eight cores into that power design too, like within a year or two. Yeah, I asked them when I was meeting with them with this whole Zen 2 APU launch about the low power designs, I was more interested in sort of Y series. So not not quite down at Atom just yet, but they seem to say that because it's kind of a niche application, there's not a lot of laptops that were using Y series or, or sort of Atom stuff that they were interested in. That wasn't really at the forefront of their mind. They were more focusing on, you know, the 15 watt class stuff. So I think for this generation, Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like we'll get any, lower power designs 
what that means for the future, I don't know. Maybe Zen 3 will come out with that. Maybe they'll wait for another generation. Who knows? But it's certainly something that I personally think they, they should be targeting because if all if you can get everything you need in a 7-watt, 5-watt form factor, they yeah. should be able to sell that product and have an even slimmer, thinner design that's even more portable just for that basic sort of use case. If you don't need to put a 15-watt class processor in there because someone's not doing video editing or gaming, you know, like high-performance gaming or whatever then, yeah, a cut-down design could be a really compelling option for those sort of form factors that would be perfectly sufficient for people. So I hope they go down that, but we know AMD, they've got limited resources for designing certain things. They tend to stick to, mm-hmm. they tend to, stick to their one design that they can use in as many places as possible type thing. Um, but I hope that... Yeah, they still need to do that. Yeah, I now. hope with a few more resources that they can experiment a bit with some more you know, creating more designs, more dyes, that sort of thing that they can implement in a few different crazy, crazy situations like like that. So Mike on Andrew writes and he says, given the crazy jumps in APU performance recently, how long can dedicated CPU and GPUs possibly be relevant? Examples being new Ryzen APU equaling the 3700X and 9900 performance. What would happen if you had a Navi 2.0 or 3.0 in a monolithic APU. So yeah, he's basically asking that. How long until you think even a lot of gamers just go with APUs for their you know gaming system? Um, I assume. I guess they already do with consoles, though. You could argue. Yeah, I, I assume <laughs> you're talking probably more about a laptop form factor here, because I would still expect a desktop with its sort of. He he means desktop. He too. means desktop too. Okay, I think on the desktop, because of the pe- sort of power requirements that you can sort of allocate power a bit better in a desktop form factor by splitting up the dies. I mean, if we're talking like 200 watt to 300 watt GPU plus mm-hmm. you sort of, you know, up to 100 watt CPU in the one die, that seems like a fairly challenging product to build for really high performance computing. So I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think that type of APU would, would happen anytime soon. But for more, you sort of entry to mid-level performance, I still think that's where APUs would sit. I mean, it's always hard to say because how much more performance will we be getting from discrete class products? Because there's always this sort of mm. catch-up thing, right? Like APUs, it always seems like, you know, oh, the new APUs got so much more performance than the last one in terms of graphics, but then the next discrete GPU also has so much more performance often. So... Mm-hmm. APUs need to kind of accelerate quicker than the pace of your discrete options for it to sort of come more up the tier in terms of that performance for a desktop. So They were for a while, but it seems like they've slowed down a little bit. But I, I don't know. I think what I would say to that, though, is let's wait till the end of 2020 yeah. and see if these bigger AMD APUs come out. Because to be fair, I don't think they really have yet. And I think we're seeing a slowdown in GPU discrete performance increases as well right now. And there's a lot of people that seem to that I've talked to that seem to think that eventually we're just going to have to go with like 3D stacking and more heterogeneous designs to reduce latency because we we really can't make them that much bigger anymore is what I'm being told. Yeah, I think that all those future design challenges are going to be really, really interesting to see how they play out. I think we've seen sort of with the APUs that you're really low, low performance products like your GT 1030s not very relevant anymore as a product. Like, there's not much point buying that sort of thing. So I think that (laughs) certainly I would be hoping that a, like a 
$100 to $150 class GPU would be in danger of being overtaken by an APU. Mm-hmm. At least getting within a, a reasonable ballpark of, we, we've talked about that for the laptops as well, sort of your, you know, RT, it's not RTX, it's a GTX 1650 type thing. <laughs> I think that that product could be in danger. And in laptops, we've seen like the MX series just get obliterated with the latest APUs. Oh, yeah. like, that was the... Well, they keep her a branding Pascal. I mean, what the heck? It's 2020. What is going on? In yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's that been the discrete GPU option for ultra portables, and now it's kind of not really relevant anymore. So, I think the, the next tier up would be in danger within, within the next couple of years, hopefully, in terms of that sort of performance. Again, it's, it's so hard to say because if, if we suddenly get a big uplift in performance from RDNA 2 and next generation NVIDIA GPUs, then maybe that situation is a bit, bit different in terms of which class of products it can you know, supersede. Um, but I would expect that a lot of companies would be thinking of those sorts of, of larger APU designs to cater to those lower-end, entry-level, mainstream markets, I- even in desktops. But again, I, I've mm. just thought again about the, the sort of memory bandwidth issue is going to be a thing for any sort of higher-performance products Maybe they'll have to. Maybe we'll have to see designs where you've got your CPU, you've got your GPU. They're all chiplet designs or something. They've got HBM on there as well, yeah. something like that. HBM on there. There's yeah. going to have to be stuff like that if they really want to get into those high performance, you know, mid mid range type products for desktops. That could be a way away. Yeah, I had a KB Lake G laptop that I reviewed and gave it a zero out of 10 because of how much it throttled. But when it wasn't throttling, it was really impressive. That was the one with the quad core KB Lake i7. Yeah, I tested that as well. I mean, it was, did you, did you let me ask you, did you have those throttling issues? Because it was, it was horrible for me that I had to send it back. Yeah, I tested the Dell laptop. Ah, mine was HP. Okay, yeah, you okay. tested the HP one. So yeah, I tested the Dell XPS Fifteen two in one, I think it was at the time. I, it didn't. I don't remember it throttling heavily, and the GPU performance was okay. But the issue that I had at the time was more that it was just a quad core design when Intel had six core laptops. Mm. Like the, I think it was a situation where you could get the KB Lake G laptop that had the quad core plus. It was, I think at the time it was like it was below ten sixty, like it was ten fifty ten fifty Ti class graphics. Yeah, I think it edged out a 1050 Ti usually. So it was around out. that, but then Dell was offering their, the 8750H or whatever it was, the six-core design plus the, the 1050 Ti in the XPS 15. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. they'd basically done the exact same design with similar GPU performance, but you got your, your six-core CPU. So that's why I didn't think it was very impressive from, from my perspective. But if they had done that design properly and they'd put in a six-core Mm-hmm. You know, G, uh, six core CPU in there could have been something worth using. It just never really went anywhere. Well, one thing that's seen, and, and it was the same thing on HP's end, though, because they had two versions of it, right? They had the KB Lake G plus Vega M option. And then they had another option that, yeah, I believe had a GTX 1050 or something and a six core. And it was abundantly clear to me. They were just using the same chassis yeah. and putting this much smaller SOC in there. And then they didn't give it any extra battery space. They didn't give it a, they didn't use the extra space for a heat sink so it wouldn't throttle. They just shoved that in there. And in fact, that's what HP did. They're like, yeah, so now this, you know, 
neutered RX 570 is next to the CPU on one heatsink, and so it throttles like crazy. Yeah, th- that really frustrates me, though. Like, OEMs not utilizing these designs properly is something that really sucks. Like, they've got all these advantages that they can use, like tiny APUs. And it hurts AMD all the yeah, time. Yeah, it burns them so hard. Like, the thing that really annoys me the most is when we see something like a Ryzen 3000, or even a little bit we're seeing that now with Ryzen 4000 APUs, is that OEMs put them in their budget low-end type designs. And you mm-hmm. get people who buy like, I don't know, they're spending $500, $600 or whatever. They're buying like a mainstream type product. And it's not like they're not very good laptops, let's be honest. They're like, you've got your fairly average displays. They're, they're thick. Battery life's not great. And but also they know it looks like it's from 2012. It's an ugly yeah, looking and, laptop, you know, a boring, not ugly, boring looking laptop. Th- there's a place in the market for that. There's no doubting that if you want a budget class product, there's there's nothing wrong with getting. Yeah, they have to make trade offs and cutbacks and stuff to hit those price points. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. But the problem I have is sort of when you only have AMD products in those type, you know, designs, people think of it as a cheap mm-hmm. option, and I think people start attributing a lot of the flaws with the laptop that are more to do with the OEM. They attribute to <laughs> the that... The fact that they put half as big yeah, a battery like, in it. <laughs> I bought an AMD laptop. It had Ryzen in it or it had a you know the previous Ages series designs. And, Steamroller or Yeah, something, and it's yeah. like, well, it had terrible battery life. The screen was awful. It was, you know, it, di- it didn't hit my expectations. And it's like, yeah, well, that wasn't the fault of AMD. That was the fault of the, the OEM for putting in like a 40-watt-hour battery in a fi- massive 15-inch chunky chassis. So they, they've got mm-hmm. to tackle, they've got to get past that sort of issue in the market in terms of just having in the low-end designs. And I think if they can, yeah, if they can do a few things there, then they'll sort of avoid that brand issue that, that they're probably suffering a little bit with, and they have done for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I know Intel has literally had mandates to HP where it's like, oh, we'll let you sell AMD CPUs. But if you put an AMD option of one type of laptop, you're required to not give it a bigger battery life than our Intel version, or we're going to jack up the price of the i7s we're selling you. And God knows everyone likes to see an i7 sticker on their laptop. So that's been a big problem for AMD. And it's to the point where I remember, you know, it's it's easier now to get AMD laptops. It's getting better. AMD is doing better. It's getting better. But I remember, I think it was four years ago, it was the previous model of the 13T that I ended up getting from HP. And I was looking for any, any, any decent laptop from Lenovo, HP, Dell, anyone that had the Steam, the Excavator, the last Dozer series, the Excavator, I think it was like the FX 9980P. I don't remember what it was called. It was the top end excavator, which is definitely weaker than the i7s of the time. But I remember looking at reviews that got good models and the integrated graphics. You know, I, it seemed like it could run like Metro Last Light and 900P at medium settings. And I was like, wow, that's a quad core. That's good enough for me. And it's probably cheaper. So, but I, I, I'm saying I literally couldn't find one laptop with that yeah. high end AMD CPU in that. And that's, yeah, I mean, if they don't use them, <laughs> that's a problem. That's the problem. But I think with, with the previous generations, as we've seen, it's kind of, it, they put an AMD CPU or APU in their product and they can't really say that they've got the highest performing laptop. Like they can't, they, there's not a lot of marketing that they can do to to leverage putting the Ryzen processor in. They could say stuff like, you know, oh, this is the good integrated graphics or whatever. But 
a lot of the time companies just put in MX series GPUs and it kind of negates that mm-hmm. point. Whereas now it's kind of a situation, we talked about this with sort of the, the gaming laptops where one company is going to potentially use, start using the APUs and that's going to cascade because they'll be able to say they have the highest performing gaming laptop. Exactly the same thing could happen on your ultra portables. If like a, a Dell comes out and says, we've got a 13-inch laptop that you can edit videos on, then suddenly that's going to c- cause a whole bunch of competition issues with companies that yeah. have decided all this time they're just going to stick with Intel. So I, I think a lot of the tactics that Intel has used with, you know, saying, oh, you know, you can't use this very stuff, you know, all this stuff, I guess, alleged. They've never really confirmed it. But it sounds like there's been a lot of that sort of, you know, we'll sell you this at a discount A lot type of stuff. it's actually confirmed. <laughs> yeah, so we'll sell you this at a discount type stuff. I think that's, it's not going to fly. And I think as well, you know, it's always the cheap option to have mm. two laptops where you just put, you have your Intel and your AMD. They use basically the same design. I'd really be hoping that companies come out with like an AMD-specific design that really leverages that. That's what they need. Like yeah. the Zephyrus, like the sort of Lenovo system, which is like your 14-inch ultra-portable that's got your 4800U in it. If, if they do that sort of thing and suddenly they've got these really compelling products that are smashing their competitors in terms of performance and what you can do in that sort of form factor, then, yeah, competition is going to start bouncing up. But it, it all has to start from AMD having a processor that actually is the best. Like they, that stuff could mm-hmm. never have worked with the previous generations. It's only now that that sort of argument actually makes any sense and is going to work. So I, I hope it's going to happen, and I hope that we see more, more Ryzen laptops, but it's always been an issue for them, unfortunately. Yeah. All right, switching gears a bit, Daniel Hyde writes in and he says, how long do you think you'll keep that 9900K test system for testing GPUs and actually the 2080 Ti in the CPU test rig? And I actually want to add on to his question because I think it's a pretty good question because I know you guys did a review yourselves where you used tweaked memory timing with a 3950X and even against the 9900KS, I think it lost by 3% on average. And the fact that it has PCIe 4.0, and there look, it's only a few percentage difference, but there have been a couple games where AMD graphics cards have I'm speaking Navi, have gotten performance bumps, very slight ones, by using PCIe 4.0. So I think there's almost an argument already that you could have an as good test system because of the platform with Zen 2 now. And what what's going to make you switch to something that's not Intel and a CPU as the CPU and a GPU test system? Yeah, interesting question. I think... <sighs> The thing with the, like the tweaked memory, at least in my opinion, you know, it's it's nice that you can get a significant performance improvement with tweaked memory on on AMD systems, but it's not it's not as much of an out of the box configuration. And, and I know that, like, I guess with a GPU test system, you should be trying to remove as many bottlenecks as possible. I, that's a, that's a fair discussion, I think. But if you're talking stock versus stock of what people are actually going to be seeing if they bought like a 9900K system versus 3950X or whatever, the 9900K still does have an edge there in terms of performance at sort of your stock configuration. So I think if it gets to a situation where AMD has definitively the fast, fastest processor, which I would expect to be happening pretty pretty soon, like with Zen 3, potentially yeah. that's a, a Zen 3 discussion, then it would definitely make sense to sort of move across. I think, you know, you mentioned stuff like PCI 4.0. I don't think that's a big selling point for moving a test system across just yet. I mean, to be fair, we do have like AMD and Intel test systems that we could use for whenever we want. It's not, mm. not a significant concern. 
But, you know, if, if games start utilizing, like if we get this next console generation and, you know, you really do need it, I think they will you start too. utilizing it more, then potentially that's a reason. PCIe 4.0, I wouldn't expect that to be a reason for at least a little bit in terms of that being, you know, a performance constraint for GPUs. But certainly it's more to do with just when the CPU is faster in a majority of games and it doesn't necessarily require tweaked memory and tuning everything to the to the craziest degree. That's something enthusiasts can do right now and get really good performance. And to be fair, like the performance differences between the two systems is very close. There's no... It's, it's like nothing. It's yeah, not it's like, like 5%, 10%. It's not like if someone has a 3950X test system doing GPU testing that they're doing it wrong because now it's close enough that that sort of... It, it, it makes sense. It's not... It's not doing it wrong. It's just that mm-hmm. if there is a processor out there that is slightly faster, even if it's one or two percent, I think we're still going to stick with that, just because it's going to deliver the least amount of bottlenecks. It's set up and ready. Um, yeah, it, we, we have no problem like switching our test systems and upgrading to the latest stuff. It's just more about if it's the absolute fastest, generally speaking, then that's kind of the way that you would mm-hmm. you would go. Even though generally we, I guess for gaming, maybe we'd recommend a ninety nine hundred K in some situations, but even though I guess most of our recommendations these days are rising for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've done a couple of videos on that. I, I, I just, I'm just speaking personally, I wholly do not recommend Intel anymore on desktop simply because it doesn't matter how I dice it. You know, the fact that it can use a PCIe 4.0 SSD if you want to, the fact that it uses, like even if you're comparing, this is my argument, a 3800X to a 9900K, I mean, you're talking about a 5% performance difference most of the time. If that, it's usually not a, there's plenty of games where you test and it's like the same length bar graph all the way down. And the fact, it's not even for me about the cost, it's the fact that, no, I'm telling you, this uses less energy this is the the platform has more features like so that's where i'm at with recommending yeah. that but yeah i don't know if you've heard like zen 3 is supposedly going to be well you know it's called zen 3 it's not called zen 2 plus it's supposedly going to bring another similar ipc increase once again with slightly reduced power usage so i don't know does that does that excite you at all or do you not see that as a big deal like Zen 3? Let's say let's say the 4950X okay. <laughs> is 16 cores at 90 watts and it is slightly higher clock speeds and 15% more IPC. Yeah, I mean I'm always excited by new hardware, you know. Zen 3 being more than just a slight refresh. I mean, I guess even Zen Plus was a little bit exciting just to see what they could do. I thought it so, was a little, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, there's always stuff that I find exciting in every sort of product launch, even if there's not much going on, just because negative results I still find you know, interesting, just be like, oh, well, they really botched that launch, didn't they, sort of thing. So mm-hmm. for Zen 3, I'm, I'm more excited about, I'm not sure whether this is confirmed or rumors or, or whatever the situation is, but more the changes to the CCX design potentially going from your four four plus four to just a straight That is core. confirmed, yeah. So if that's yeah. confirmed or rumor, I'm a, I don't keep up with rumors, as we've mentioned on the channel a lot. It's not really our thing. But if that is the situation, I think there's a lot of performance gains that could happen from that switch in terms in the design, whether that's factored mm-hmm. into the IPC improvements. I've got no idea. But that excites me a lot for stuff like gaming and, and things where the you know, intercore latencies are a big deal, accessing cache is a big deal, mm-hmm. and having more cores in a unified sort of design is going to improve a lot of those situations. 
So for me, that's that's going to be a very exciting thing to see how those design elements impact gaming, which is, I guess, a lot of the focus of our of our channel. Yeah, I mean, generally, as you say, we don't recommend Intel processors a lot. You know, nine nine hundred K is really only for people that have like a two forty hertz monitor playing at ten eighty p doing you know, competitive esports mm-hmm. gaming, a lot of the rest of the time you're getting either better value from Ryzen, you're getting better platform features. I don't see PCIe 4.0 is really compelling, but the AM4 socket is a really compelling feature. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting, you have higher core count parts available to you. So that sort of, well, that sort of thing sits with me. And I think a lot of that stuff's going to just get better with Zen 3. So it's all, it's all super exciting for me. I love seeing new hardware. <laughs> So moving on to monitors now, Uh, Nils writes in and he says, it seems to me like we're in an era of changeover in mainstream screen technologies. Do you see OLED, micro LED as something that will replace panel types as we use them now? Or do you more expect them to work alongside them? And what do you think about HDR and greater than 144 hertz panels? Do you think people will see a big enough difference in the quality of HDR and high refresh rates to take over a large part of the market, not just in high-end gaming? Okay, lot to break down in that question. A lot of stuff. A lot there. of breakdown. Yeah. So OLED and micro LED. I think I think micro LED will win that battle long term, and I think that will be the technology to replace LCD. Mostly because OLED, they just still can't beat the image retention issues. And even though, like, I have an LG OLED TV. Well, you reviewed that laptop. Yeah, I, I, I reviewed you? the laptop. I've personally, I own an OLED TV. I think it's by far the best TV technology you can me buy. Me too. That's what's behind. So me. you know, OLED for that market is definitely beating LCD in a lot of ways. But the problem for sort of your desktop form factors really is image retention because things like your taskbar, your Mm -hmm. applications could potentially burn in worse over time than what you'd see from general content usage on TV. So I think... Or even a laptop that turns its screen off, Yeah, even a laptop. But people use their monitors for a long time. And if you're only getting two to three years of non-image retention usage out of it, that's not enough. So... Mm-hmm. While that's an issue, I don't think I think OLED will still be a sidekick to LCD while that's still an issue. And only once we start seeing these micro LED designs, which give you you know your full array per pixel control over the backlight, but it still uses the, the standard stuff you get with an LCD, so you don't get image retention. That's going to be the big breakthrough, and that'll be that'll become the next generation. But it sounds like it's still quite some way away on that. I think it's, yeah, I've heard a lot of people say to me recently, uh, because I'm a big proponent of OLED, once I started using, like, because I have the, the LG one I have is 120 hertz, you know, yeah, HDR free sync. Yep. And it, yeah, it's, it's unrivaled how good it's it yeah. looks. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, I, I was playing, I actually, just because I didn't want to deal with the Epic Game Store, I got Borderlands for PlayStation 4. And I didn't realize the performance mode was in 1080p on the PS4 Pro, but it's because on OLED, lower resolutions look significantly better than LCD. It's so much less blocky. And I keep telling people if they could just get this, you know. Anyways, the point I was going to bring up is when people say I'm going to skip OLED and rate for micro LED, I'm like, well... It might be a pretty long wait. As far yeah. as I can tell, where micro LED is now is 
where OLED was in like 2013. Like it sounds like they're they're super expensive and uh, they keep talking about them, but I don't see them at Best Buy and I only see more people yeah. moving over to OLED. I mean, the issue is seems to be for now the density. I mean, I think Samsung's micro LED TVs are really large format, like 85 inch yeah. plus, and they can't get it yet into the more common form factors. So if density is an issue for TVs, you can imagine how much density is going to be an issue for a monitor that needs to cram you know, 4K into like a 32 inch size, not, mm-hmm. not even 65 inch. So someone shouldn't be waiting for micro LED. There's an entire, you, you can get an entire lifespan out of a monitor before, in my opinion, before that will become a reality, perhaps even two generations of monitors. So you, if you buy now and you wait five years, maybe micro LED is there. Maybe. It's not even like a confirmed, <laughs> definitely your next upgrade will be mm-hmm. micro LED. It's like potentially. I guess addressing the rest of the, the question, I think there was some stuff there about Oh, yeah. There was HDR and high refresh, higher than 144 hertz refresh rates. Is that important? HDR, definitely. I mean, you've got an L- LG mm-hmm. OLED TV. The upgrade from HDR, oh, yeah. especially in games, is significant. Like, I, yeah, I was playing Sekiro in HDR, yeah. and I was in like this section with like the burned, burning buildings and the fire. It looks insane. Yeah, it looks insane. Some of that's from from your OLED. Some of that's from from HDR. And if you can get both of those sort of types of technologies, really deep blacks, plus the really high brightness and contrast and everything from HDR. It's just a next level experience. It's significantly improved mm-hmm. so many areas to how things look with no difference to you know, performance. Yeah, so I think HDR to me is more important than high, higher than 144 hertz refresh rates. Obviously, if you're still on 60 hertz, get your 144 hertz as soon as you possibly can because it's a massive upgrade. Mm-hmm. But HDR, yeah. I tend to agree you know, As I was saying, it's kind of like, it, it's a free upgrade in terms of visuals. Like there's no there's yes. no performance cost and you're getting much better lighting. You're getting, you know, much deeper blacks and all that stuff just makes the picture quality better. And especially in games like with movies and stuff, it does depend a little bit on how how it's being filmed, how it's being graded. Mm. A lot of a lot of the time, they, they can only do so much. Well, but even old movies, you know, perfect blacks. So yeah, it looks better. Yeah, it definitely looks, like, don't get me wrong, movies in HDR look so much better than movies without HDR most of the time. But from what I've seen from games, it seems that games are like another step above in terms of how much of a benefit you can get from HDR. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, especially sci-fi games that do like all sorts of crazy lighting and, and stuff that you, you, you can't really do that on a set. I mean, you can do a bit of it in CG and all that sort of thing. But it just seems, it just, mm-hmm. it feels so... So like it just feels like a massive upgrade in terms of realism and and, and visual quality that I'd be really keen on. I mean, it's, it, it's just not affordable right now in terms of monitors to get a good HDR monitor. But I think that's going to be such a significant improvement for me for the high refresh rate stuff, like past 144 hertz. Personally, I can tell the difference between a 144 and say a 240 hertz monitor. Maybe that's because I test a lot of mm-hmm, monitors. Me too. I think it is more responsive. It's smoother. Gaming on it, it's better. But at the same time, I don't think it's like a significant game-changing improvement. It might come down to, you know, everyone will get used to 144 hertz and then suddenly 240 hertz will seem like a massive jump like 60 to 144 hertz was. I'm not sure whether that's something mm-hmm. that's going to be possible because, you know, maybe that stuff hasn't been around for long enough for that, that sort of experience to be ingrained in your minds to realize how good 240 hertz is. But the thing with higher refresh rates that's better than just the smoothness and responsiveness is... Because you get more images on the screen, there's less motion blur, especially on an LCD. Like it just cuts down a lot of that issue mm-hmm. um, with your sort of sample and hold. The more samples you can show, 
the less blur you get when you're sort of tracking things on the screen. Not necessarily the smoothness and fluidity, but that is a big gain that I think is going to be going to be key for all these sorts of monitors moving forward and gaming. Hopefully we get to like a thousand hertz monitors, then we'll start to really get well, super clear performance. Yeah, the way there's there's definitely diminishing returns for refresh rates, same as resolutions. The way I explain it, and this is just for me, you know, everyone has different abilities of sight and how they track objects. Yeah. But I, I would say going from 60 to 144 hertz for me is kind of like going from 40 hertz, maybe not quite 30, but going from 40 hertz to 60. Yeah, I think like that's that's fair. the increase in smoothness yeah. for me. And then going from 144 to 240 hertz. I don't know. That's kind of like going from 100 to 144. You can definitely see the difference, but there's clearly high diminishing returns kicking in at 240. And I get the feeling that to feel that 40 to 60 difference, I would want to see 480 hertz, which those yeah. are coming out yeah. now in limited quantities. And But it's going to be... It's just going to be so long until that standard. I mean, I, I'm just excited that the consoles, well, I, I, I believe, have 60 hertz as the standard next gen. And I think there will be some games that do 120 hertz because pretty much every big screen TV supports 120 hertz now. So there's a real reason for Sony and Microsoft to try that. But that's it. They're going to support 120 hertz. I mean, Sekiro, I brought that up. That doesn't even, it can't. It can't even run above 60 hertz. Yeah. <laughs> so there's still games you get that can't even run above 60. So do you really, the way I would describe it is, do you really want a 240 hertz monitor when some games won't even let you play above 60 still? You know, I don't know that I would. It's it's maybe not the best bang for your buck. If you're an esports gamer, no, hertz. go for it, of course. 144 hertz is the bang for buck segment. It's probably going to be for, for quite some time, I would have thought. But, you know, you always want to see technology improve at the top end. And it's not like there's no difference. If there was no difference between like 144 and 240 or 240, and I assume a higher, higher refresh rate, then you just wouldn't bother. It's like, well, okay, we've, we've hit the smoothness limit. But especially with LCDs, as I was talking about, the sample and hold type stuff, motion tracking, smoothness and everything improving marginally. And also, a lot of the time, it forces LCD manufacturers to produce faster panels, which means that you get sort of even more yeah. improvements, sort of ghosting and that sort of thing. Then all that stuff sort of compounds to make a few different areas that those panels are better, but it's going to take a lot of time for GPs to catch up and that sort of thing. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. So let me ask you this then. This is a question I had here kind of getting towards the end of the script is, you reveal a lot of monitors. Yep. Not now. Two years, let's say three years from now, what's your God-tier monitor you're hoping is on the market? And I'll put a cap, let's say for $1,000, where do you hope the, you know, I'm not 2000 I'm not being insane, but for like $1,000, the, the very top of the sane person market, what, where do you hope monitors would be, like in aspirationally three years from now? So there's a lot of different ways to answer that question. I think for now, and I think through the next generation, for, for monitor sizes, I tend to think of like 27-inch 1440p is a really good sweet spot for gaming right now. And to me, there's diminishing returns from 1440p to 4K in that sort of size. Like it's it's better, but for mm -hmm. gaming, I don't know, the performance benefits you get from 1440 over 4K swings me to 1440. But mm -hmm. at the moment, you can't get any HDR monitors with a 1440p display. It's just not a thing. They're all 4K. They, they tend to be higher quality monitors. In, well, in, I'm sorry. In terms of picture quality, they tend to have better color and stuff too in 4K. And actually I had someone tell me 
that the fact that there's more pixels allows the color, the HDR, I, I don't know how to describe what he said. It was like the HDR color is actually more accurate the more pixels you throw at it too. So there's some levels of HDR you can't even get without 4K. Yeah, I guess that would have to do with sort of your gradients and that sort of thing in terms of in terms of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I just would have thought maybe not for an all-round monitor, but certainly for a gaming monitor, I'd be looking at like a 27-inch 1440p 240 hertz IPS. That 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 sort of thing is coming now. Like that's not like a far away type three-year type panel, but with mm-hmm. actually not necessarily like micro LED type backlighting, but high zone count, maybe like 500 to 1,000 backlighting zones HDR. And I think that is going to provide people with a reasonable resolution, good high refresh rate gaming experience because you're not trying to target 4K. You've got your resolution target is a bit lower, but you're still you're still running that at natively, so it looks really nice. But then you get the benefits of HDR on top of that. Monitor manufacturers don't seem to be really thinking of this. They're going all out on 4K with their HDR panels. I get it. It's a really high end expensive thing. You know, if you're spending two thousand dollars, you might want mm. you want 4K because it's the future. But I would have thought, you know, right now we have really good quality. 1440p high refresh monitors for $500. So if you in three years for $1,000, I'd be wanting like the ultimate 1440p, super high refresh, super good HDR experience. I think that's that's possible. Within the next tier up, your $1,500 for, you know, being your sort of 4K, really good high refresh, you know, HDR type experiences. I think that's, that's what I would sort of like to see is sort of the God tier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess... Um... Well, have you seen the new Eve monitors coming out? They, I think you can pre-order them now. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping to, it's like an. I'm hoping to test one of those. I gotta admit, like I'm one of those holdouts that I want. I like because I, I once I saw OLED, it's hard for me to go back. I want to hope there's some kind of OLED monitor that comes out that's 120 hertz 4K. But I gotta admit, for six hundred dollars, I'm getting a little tired of the 1080p monitor I have here that I keep clinging to, and I think I might just have to spring for that. But I do want to see reviews first, and you know, that's not three years from now. That's right now, six hundred dollars, 4K HDR, and it seems like real HDR. You know, like I think it was HDR 600. You know, one millisecond. IGZO IPS display, not micro LED or OLED, but that's pretty good. I've seen IGZO, some of the nicer IGZO displays and they look really incredible. So I think that's going to kind of be the standard sooner than people think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, it always depends on sort of if you're more the higher quality gamer, in which case your 4K panel might make more sense, or more of the higher refresh gamer, which I think 1440p is really going to take over 1080. I mean, we're just talking about it's essentially 1080p becomes the new, or 1440p becomes the new 1080p and 4K becomes the new 1440p. So I guess it would just depend mm-hmm. in terms of what you are after and sort of which of those gamer types you'd fall into. The EXO panel is definitely going to be interesting to see that sort of 4K higher refresh, semi-HDR type experience for $600. I mean, we have decent non-HDR sort of 4K high refresh panels as is for a little bit more than $600. So getting that new generation in a bit cheaper is really going to open a few doors there. But again, it's hard to say without testing it because you never you never know how these panels are going to come out. There's all sorts of things that sound really good and they're just the panel's quality is garbage. So we'll see what happens there. I'm hope I've got high hopes for it though. I hope that I get to because well, they've got two versions. They've got a they've got a uh, 1440p 240 hertz version. Yeah, as they well. do. They also have yeah. that too. So 
Which I guess that tells you I swing more towards the 4K yeah. one. Although you say I swing towards the 4K one, and what am I using right now? A 1080p <laughs> high refresh rate monitor. So I, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm an ultra wide gamer anyway, so yeah, it's a bit different for me as is. Well, you know, uh, when I think about that, though, I think with that coming out this year, I really think monitors have insane markups on them right now if they're branded gaming monitors i mean you have the you have an oled t we have the same i think c9 uh tv and that's about the price of that asus 384 dimming zone monitor i get this feeling they're marking those up by quite quite a large bit in that as more and more OLEDs come out with 120 hertz one mil i mean the uh lg is literally advertising one I think they might advertise 144 hertz now at the C10. I don't remember. One millisecond gaming on these TVs. It's going to start pulling down these monitor prices. And I don't know. I really think in a few years, I really think, and I th- I thought this would happen a long time ago, but it seems like we just kind of got stuck at these resolutions we've been on for a while. I, I think we might really get to like 4K, 120 hertz gaming is kind of the $500 mark a couple of years from now. I really don't, I, I think... At least that's what I think. I don't know. Do you think that's so outlandish to be that optimistic? No, I don't think. 4K, I mean, with the 2080 Ti now, you can get 4K 60 to 80 FPS type gaming at ultra settings. So it's, you know, the GPU power is going to be there in a few few years for sort of your 4K 144, like consistent type performance from a high-end GPU, maybe even mid-range, who knows? Um, so I think on the GPU side, it's definitely going to be there. I guess it would just depend on, yeah, sort of what people are targeting in terms of their, their displays. I think there's there's really no wrong answer in terms of what people want from from a monitor, whether they want to target one thing or, or another. The thing with the TV pricing, though, and this is something I, I like to remind people of, is that the reason mm-hmm. why TVs are so affordable is that because they're internet connected. And a lot of the times these companies are doing things like your screen recognition and selling that data to advertisers, which maybe isn't the best sort of you know, thing from a privacy perspective, but that's how a lot of the companies are able to offset the cost of their their TVs and selling them potentially at below the manufacturing cost. I think Vizio was one of the companies that admitted that mm. they do this with their TVs. The reason why they're so cheap is that, you know, they sell the the advertising information or whatever and make a bit more so they can sell the TVs for really cheap, which obviously you can't do with a monitor because they're not generally speaking, internet mm-hmm. connected. So I agree that there is a significant markup on the high-end stuff right now, but I don't think, unfortunately, because of this data-selling TV situation, I don't think we'll ever get to the situation where mm. monitors seem as affordable as TVs seem, unfortunately. There are some issues with de- manufacturing more dense stuff and all that sort of thing, but, yeah, unfortunately, that's just the reality of the uh, you know smart TV ecosystem we have right now. So let me absolutely quantify it then. Zach Gunkel writes in and he says, I'm in the market for a new monitor and I'm not looking to spend more than $600. I have a 5700 XT. This is a very common question I see in the comments. Should I get a really good 1440p 144 hertz or to be worth staying at 1080p 60 until 4K high refreshes are available for a reasonable price? Keep in mind, I use my monitors once I hook them up for about six years. Actually, I think I want to answer this first because I my answer is it's it's a bit of both. I mean, I think if you're going to use this for six years, I don't know that you. I mean, if 
See, because this is a different question if you're like my brother and he bought six years ago or I think seven now. He got like some Samsung Korean monitor that was 4K 63 millisecond. And that's still, he's still 4K 60. He's still quite happy with that. So he's not pressed to upgrade. But I think if you're gaming at 1080p 60, I think you don't need to spend 600 now. I think for under 300 now, you can get 1440p 120 hertz monitors if I'm not mistaken. And then... If it, if I my optimistic fantasies come true in a few years, you just get whatever you really want. I, I don't know. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's always this sort of buy now versus buy later situation. Be, you know, it depends on sort of this. It always depends on like the situation you're coming from. You know, how often you want to upgrade and all that sort of thing. And from from your uh, readers or viewers' question, it sounds like it was coming from 1080p 60. If I'm right, and going to keep mm-hmm. it for five to six years, probably TN panel. Probably TN. Yeah. So, I mean. Yes, you could wait for like 4K high refresh to become affordable. I think they're the cheapest sort of IPS good quality ones, like 800-ish at the moment, which is obviously above the the price range that they're looking for. The The jump there is massive, obviously massive. And I would think that yeah. the jump from 1080p 60 to even 1440p 144Hz would be massive. And you could get like... As you say, you don't you don't have to buy a high end monitor. You don't need to buy the LG twenty seven G eight fifty or anything like that. You don't need to spend five hundred dollars to get a really good fourteen forty p one forty four. It's experience that that monitor is more for people that have really high end systems and want the best of the best because it is, in my opinion, the best of the best fourteen forty p monitor. Mm-hmm. You could spend three hundred and fifty dollars get the ViewSonic VX two seven five eight two KP MHD, which is still has a terrible name, but it's like. Three hundred and twenty to three hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> it's fourteen forty p one forty four hertz. It's IPS, so you're not you're not facing TN. You're not getting the dark level smearing of VA. You've got really good image quality, and it's very affordable. It's like a mid range monitor. It's three hundred and fifty bucks. It's well below their six hundred dollar budget. And I think, yeah, you could easily keep that for the next two or three years, three or four years, whatever the time frame is, until you start seeing really good quality four K high refresh IPS monitors coming down to that five hundred dollar price point. And then you can jump in. And then overall, you've only spent, you know, $800-ish between the, the money you buy now, the money you buy in the future. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've got a really good experience now that is playable on your GPU and is giving you a massive upgrade. You're not spending that $800 now. And then later, you're getting an even better 4K monitor for cheaper. I think that's probably the way I would, I would think of that. Yeah, I think I have one more reader mail here that I'll ask you too. Tango Fan writes in and he goes, Tom, if I recall, so I guess he's addressing it to me. Tom, if I recall correctly, you have said in the past to the effect that 1440p is a doomed resolution because of the new consoles and content. I don't think I said doomed, but I do use my monitors. I actually don't right now, but I do sometimes use my monitors both for my desktop and for consoles and for viewing media. And so I always think of it like, I guess it's complicated because things have changed again. You know, I remember when the 290X came out. Oh, we did it. We can do 4K 30 hertz gaming. <laughs> like, and that, and so then I assumed graphics cards would just get so much stronger quickly, and they didn't. And I thought monitors would get cheaper, and they really didn't uh, from 2015, let's say. And I guess. When I was looking at 4K monitors, when I used to think this way, it seemed like 4K monitors were about 500 bucks, and then 1440p ones were like 350. And I always thought, well, you're over doubling the resolution. Go to 500 so that you're 
you know, consoles that run at 4K, and some of them do, can use it. But it's, I think 1440p monitors are getting a bit cheaper now. And I even saw that Xbox is supporting 1440p yeah. natively, and I assume PlayStation will too. So it's it's actually more complicated for me now. But how do you think about, because I guess the one counter argument I'll make against 1440p is if the prices are within like 30%, and sometimes a 1440p and a 4K monitor's price, both IPS, both same refresh rate, are within actually 10, 20% of the same price. You can turn down the resolution on a 4K monitor. Yeah. Every game now, thank God, comes with resolution scale. My brother is a Vega 56. He plays games, so he'll just play it like 80% resolution scale, and that's still way above 1440p. So how do you think about that with resolution scale for 4K and with you know watching full 4K content, whether from a console or from Netflix or something? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously loads of benefits to getting a 4K if you do like mixed usage. If you've got like your console, as you say, you do you watch movies on it then potentially going down the 4K path is going to be more for you. And yeah, resolution scaling is also another great option. I think these days you can get you know 1800p-ish quality up to 4K very easily, not much of a quality loss. Mm. So really it's not 4K game, it's more 1800p gaming. And even DLSS can run games at like 1440p and upscale it to 4K, the, the new version that is 2.0, with mm-hmm. very minimal sort of quality loss or impact. So all that stuff is going to make 4K gaming better in the future as these technologies get explored, not just resolution scaling, but like reconstruction, not just DLSS, but other forms of doing that. I'm sure the consoles will be exploring mm-hmm. all this sort of thing. So all that is going to make 4K you know, a really great option for sort of, yeah, it's definitely going to be the new high end. So you know, I, as I was sort of saying before, I think it's, it's more of a case of 1080p getting replaced as the budget option with 1440p. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've seen, especially in the last year, massive price movements in 1440p monitors. They used to be more of a high-end option with 4K being like your, if you want a high refresh rate option for gaming, it's like, okay, $2,000, whereas 1440p was more a reasonable high-end price yeah. point. Like six or $700 monitors would get you something really good. Nowadays, that price has been halved, basically. So when you look at that, it's very quickly pushing down into 1080p category. And once it starts getting to your $100 monitors, I don't see why someone mm-hmm. would buy a 1080p monitor anymore. And then you get into the duology, mm-hmm. as I was sort of saying, of you have your 1440p for your mid to low end and your 4K for high end. And I really think that's where it's going to go. And, and with all these technologies like resolution scaling, making something like 4K more playable, then you're getting even more benefit from your 4K monitor, not just being able to run at 60 hertz, but being able to push up more with those techniques. It's going to be... It's going to be good, but considering most people are probably more mid-range buyers at the moment, we know how many people buy stuff like 5700 XTs, Ryzen 5 processors. For now, I think my recommendation for a lot of people would still be to go 1440p, but could change in a few years once we start getting these really nice, affordable options in. Hopefully, it pushes everything down massively and I always like stuff getting cheaper. Yeah, 1080p, 72 hertz, 60 hertz monitors have been $100 for the past, I don't know. Eight years. Yeah. <laughs> I swear they hit about a hundred bucks, and that just seems to be about the floor there. Yeah, I, I guess that's about everything I wrote down for notes in terms of specific discussion points. I had other reader questions, but I think we actually already answered pretty much any of the other literal questions written in. So let me just ask you openly: Is there anything else you're curious to talk about? Whether it's Anything, anything like Big Navi, Ampere, all these other things coming. I mean, I'm sure you guys will be doing loads of videos on those, but is there anything we didn't cover that you'd be curious to talk about? Oh, uh, 
Not, not that I can think of right now. I mean, you know, the Ampere and big Navi stuff's more Steve's realm of things. I think we've covered most of the stuff that, you know, I was interested in talking about, the laptop stuff, the the APUs, displays, you know, all the stuff I cover on hardware and box. I always love talking about that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was really good to get an in-depth discussion about the, the APU technologies and all that sort of thing. It's, it's a really interesting market, I think, coming up and finally getting competition makes it even more interesting, stuff to actually talk about now, not just Intel generation upon generation of not much happening. So, yeah, it's good to have a chat. Good to get on board and on with the podcast. Yeah, well, I'm glad you came on the podcast. And um, I guess I'll let you plug anything you want to plug. There's probably a channel you want to tell people. I'll put links in the description. Ah, oh, no, nah, no major plugs, no book deals or anything going on, no TV shows to watch. It's just, just hardware unboxed as always. Just go check out our reviews and all that sort of thing. And yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, well... Since you are a time traveler, I believe you have the majority of the day to get to. I've got dinner to finish up. So uh, thanks for coming on, Tim. Hopefully we can do it again. And uh, I don't know, stay safe out there and don't don't slow down on the blue bar output. That would be a travesty to the world if we had less blue bars coming out. Standard schedule for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. Thank you. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are solely responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. The Discord is only at $1, and at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Bootman, Carbon Cry, Dean, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim, Bollocks, Jordan Betcher, Muhammad Al-Khwari, Frederick Lau, Gribbeth, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Colm Marco, Phil S., Thyrister, the ninth dude, Greg Renegar, John Bible, Chrysantine, Night Rogue 77, the Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Diesel, Daniel Hyde, Matthew McMullen, Christoph Novak, 
Neil X01, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Sexy, Scott Shove, Sadler, Sadler, Victor Cohagon, Elethros, Telos, Caden Picknell, Greg T. Wanchuk, Jacob Barber, XOT, Whiny Care Bear, Matthew Lane, Paul Jones, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Michael Costa, Allie Robertson, Gordon Lamb, Jonathan, Drita Full, Evan Dingle, Nick Neasy, Dominic Deward, Harold P. Bureau, Wayne, Sam MacArthur, James Crosta, Hector Santana, Brad Mendlin, Andrew S., Edward Huff, and VI Past. And thank you to Sahara for the music. Music.